Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hi, everyone. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to the Rerooted Podcast here on Ramdas's Be Here Now Network. Uh, you can find out more about me and some of my upcoming offerings at my website, www.maximeclarity.com. M-A-X-I, I'm like Mary, E like email. Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y, like clearseeing.com. Today we're talking about, uh, again, sort of what it means to come into awareness and into a relationship around one's racialized identity. And the emphasis that I've been talking about a lot is about waking up as a white-bodied or a white-skinned privileged or a white-adjacent or a white-lived experience or any of these positions where if you're looking at your social location, which is sort of what is centered in terms of being a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, male, Christian, English first language here in the United States, born in the United States, etc. When you're looking at what is centered in a system that categorizes value to people based on random assignations of things like ethnicity and melanin levels or ability or gender or sexual orientation and things like that. And when we're talking about systems, we're talking about things like legacy burdens that uh, Internal Family Systems founder uh, Richard Schwartz talks about, sexism, patriarchy, capitalism, individualism, racism, these kinds of things that we're sort of looking at in the context of these systems of ranking who is centered and who is marginalized. And, And because we know that there has been a long history of construct around keeping people uh, in certain places, and we see this particularly in the United States, but we also see this uh, in the caste system in, in, in India. I know that uh, Isabel Wilkerson just wrote a book about uh, called Caste, and uh, I encourage people to read that. It's, it's certainly a good read, and it, it gives us a perspective in terms of um, how the United States has created sort of a caste system around race, that we can begin to interrogate white people or white adjacent people as racialized beings also, and not just people who are having different levels of pigmentation uh, that are considered racialized beings that experience uh, racial trauma or, 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 or racial experiences, that also white people in sort of the ignorance or in the denial or in the not knowing or in the not considering whiteness as a thing in and of itself as part of a system that affects everyone, um, that there can be uh, a lot of deep learning there that can also happen. And so we're leaning into that. We're leaning into the self-reflection around white-bodied or white-adjacent or white or light-skinned privileged folks, even if you're, quote-unquote, a person of color who's um, marginalized in some way, um, we're, we're just sort of naming that in this system, there are assignations of value based on racial identity. 
And to that end, that's a long introduction that doesn't really have anything particular to do with um, Judy Ride, but it's sort of talking or trying to lay out a framework of the work that she brings to the table. She's an author whose books I've read, um, one of which is called Being White and the Helping Professions, which is a support for folks like therapists or anyone who's in a in a in a helping professional profession role, teachers, people who are even mindfulness teachers or yoga instructors or um, you know psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, and also white privilege unmasked, which is uh, another terrific book to sort of talk a little bit about what is it that people who have um, white identities uh, or have white bodies or white adjacent bodies, what are the things that sort of come along with that, that may be unpacked or unmasked, to use Judy's term, uh, that we can kind of dig into and understand a little bit more about as we lean into becoming embodied anti-racist. So with all of that said, Judy, coming from uh, all the way over across the pond, welcome to the Rerooted Podcast. It's so lovely to see you today. Yeah, lovely to see you too. Francesca. really nice to be here. Thank Thank you for inviting me. Yes, it's my it's my pleasure. And I have to say, Judy, you know, you're one of the few people that I've read who's created at least books that seem pretty readily accessible, that anybody can read them, um, even though they're sort of intended for therapists or people who are working with, um, you know, communities uh, in, a, in, a, in a helping professional way, not necessarily a corporate way, you know, corporate context, um, that they really could be applied to any context. Um, what motivated you as a white woman in the UK to kind of start unpacking and exploring this area? Well, um, I've always been interested in what could be called diversity. And um, it, I'm not, I don't feel I've really quite got to the bottom of why that was, has been such an interest of mine. Um, I mean, I, I speculate in my book that I had a sort of best friend who was black when I was at school and she was pretty well the only black person I knew. And when we left school, she um, rejected me and all the, her other friends at the school, realising that she'd been in the receiving end of racism. And that was a very formative experience for me. Um, How old were you? I was. Well, I was 14 when we, well, I think we were, she was, we were 12 when she came to the school, Mm. but we got, we became closer really because I was, my class was a bit less than the other people at the school. I was a bit different as well in a different way. And there were three of us that made friends. One was me who, who didn't quite measure up class wise. There was her, who was actually highly intelligent and very um, sort of upper class in a Nigerian setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, someone who was very overweight. So we were all three marginalized people, I guess. And we mm-hmm. made a little threesome. And none of us were made prefects. <laughs> so we had a, a sort of our own, what we called a common room. Like we were all together, really. And so, anyway, so that was a, a formative experience for me. Um, and then I became a psychotherapist. That's another whole story. But I was very concerned about the way psychotherapy was such a white, well, undiverse profession, 
just full of white middle-class middle-aged ladies really. yeah yeah and uh, I don't know if it's like that in America but um, um, so uh, I had an opportunity to uh, do some studying at Bath University which is the town where I live now and um, it was at something called um, the Centre for Action Research and Professional Practice. So you used action research, which is a sort of collaborative um, type of research, um, to explore um, a matter of your professional practice. It could be anything from your professional practice. And I thought, here's my opportunity to, um, to research uh, di the lack of diversity in the psychotherapy profession. But then I was very um, challenged by the people that I had a supervision group. We were all put into small groups with a supervisor and they were all saying, I don't know why you're looking at this. This isn't your area. You know, it's um, you're not black. You know, why are you interested in this? You know, what what's going on with you that you should be doing that? They saw me as a bit of a, a do-gooder, I think. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because uh, the whole ethos of the place was to explore something of yourself. I see. You see? Individual. Oh. Yes, yes. But also, you know, to go inside and, and explore it. Sure, not right. To, not to be looking out there at them out there. What do they like? Or what do they want? Or so on. So I had a good think about this. And I thought, well, I can't be outside this situation. Um, the, the the racial situation is something we all partake in and my partaking of it is being white and in that sense I'm privileged and that took me you know I I, I did various bits of writing to come to this conclusion including about my school friend I did a whole piece of writing about her and that was very formative for me as well um, so I started looking into being white and um, the first thing I discovered is that I couldn't see it. Like it was like looking at nothingness, like there was mm. nothing to see. And when I said this in this supervision group, um, there were two people, including the supervisor, who were not white. They were kind of a bit disgusted with me, I think, really. Mm. Surely you can see something. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, to someone who's not white, thinking about race, thinking about their race is not a nothing. It's not a nothing. Right. But for me, it was a nothing. And um, that, was, that was quite confronting. And, um, Meaning that it's a nothingness that you had never been tasked with having to think about in the same way that someone who is in a black or brown body is going to have to necessarily confront in a way because yes. often uncomfortable encounters around that, that may have happened in your life because of other factors, perhaps a woman, perhaps a class issue around, you know, financial means or economic status, um, but not about race. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, and I think it goes a bit deeper than that, but the, as a white person, I was just folks, you know, I was just, uh, I was not marked out in any way, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, 
I'm just live my life. Mm, right. You know, I, um, and then I started, I discovered white studies, sociological literature. So not the literature I would have been reading because it was sociology rather than psychotherapy. And what I discovered there is that this whole thing that whiteness is nothing is something that had been quite well explored in that discipline. Mm. Um, and um, um, th there were people, for instance, that wrote, there's someone called Dyer, he said, you know, that the, the privilege of white people is to be just normal. If you're white, you're just normal. And other people deviate from that normality by being a different color. Mm. Uh, and so that was kind of my way in was that and then I started reading the history of all this and realizing how white people had described the races in the first place of course that it's not actually I mean there was a big movement I expect you, you and your listeners know that that to actually find a scientific basis for race mm -hmm. you know, looking at skulls and so on um and uh, there were all sorts of very strange ideas around at the time about that, like you are more intelligent if you had a long face than a round face sort of thing, that kind right, of thing. Right, right. All of these so, sort of pseudo-scientific exactly. ideas around, you know, if it's this, it means this. And who was yeah. it, Linnaeus, I believe, who categorized some of these things? And, and Yes, that's uh, right, yes. You know, it, it's just this idea that... Um, you know, sort of picked and plucked, you know, who's more human or who's more this or that. And, and, yes, uh, yes. and then these tropes have continued and persisted in terms of who's more endeavoring or who's more intelligent mm -hmm. or who's more, uh, you know, resilient or beautiful who has, even. Yeah, well, of you course. Know, it was, yes, like Caucasians, uh, which is very bizarre because they, they were for some reason considered more intelligent and capable and beautiful than anyone else. So this word describing white people as Caucasian, mm -hmm. which seems very odd, um, came into being. Um, and it's still, it's a term that's still used today. It means absolutely nothing, really. Right, right. Well, <clears throat> I did a different podcast with a woman by the name of Dr. Jacqueline Battalore, and she wrote a book called The Invention of White People, and you may be familiar with it. And it's just simply that. It's that there was just this categorization that was randomly constructed, um, but for a purpose. And, yes, and, and, and you know, perhaps yes. you can get into what that purpose is and how that plays out and infiltrates also um, all institutions, all all structures, but also um, particularly how it can manifest in a way that's insidiously um, unhelpful in the helping professions, as you say, as a psychotherapist. Absolutely, yes. Um, so, um, where are we going? <laughs> yeah, well, you can continue with your other story and then we can come yes. back to that. We'll just yes, bookmark yes. that. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so the history, I mean, I think all that sort of seeps into society. So it seeps into, I see it as a systemic thing, but sometimes people think that means that the individual has nothing to do with it. I mean, I think that we're all woven into the societal systems and it manifests through each of us. And we all... Uh, you know, tap into that deep history that we experience almost in our DNA, you know, that, that it, 
it's there. And I sometimes say to people when I'm working with them, you know, workshops and so on, um, to catch their racial racialized thinking. Mm. You know, that everybody people deny they're a racist. I mean, it's kind of it's fairly universal that people deny they're a racist. Um, and, you know, people who espouse ideas of equality and, you know, say that there should be racial equality uh, can nevertheless have racial thoughts. Um, yeah. And uh, it's very difficult to encourage people to actually own that because I think you need to know that in order to do something about it, catch it, you know? Sure. So, um, these thoughts go through your head like that. And, you know, can you catch it? You yeah, know? yeah, they're very subtle. And from the mindfulness perspective, you know, from sort of the, the perspective of where this podcast sits in terms of a self-exploration and in self ex a self-investigation around how are we thinking? We're trying to understand our minds. We're trying to understand, yeah. you know, um, how they work and what happens. And, you know, the basic teaching there of, of the Buddha's teaching is, is that, well, causes and conditions, you know, um, are things that we, you know, sort of necessarily inherit as part of a process of, of, of kind of uh, coming into the way in which we learn to be in the world, if you will. And, and that those are often the imprints that influence how we're thinking and what our beliefs are. But if, if we're looking at that and we're sort of pulling back the, the curtain and pulling back the veil and looking at things exactly as they are, we know that 99%, for example, of people um, is the same, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background in terms of DNA. And uh, this effort to sort of categorize people, dehumanize people, things like that, um, is been an effort in service to, um, I like to, I mean, I don't like to, but I, I use the word like extraction, the domination, the, the whole idea of of categorization around superiority um, of, of certain things so that there can be gain at the loss and at the expense of others that are deemed um, either inhuman or disposable. Yes, yes. And of course, a lot of people would say that they absolutely do not agree with that. And yet, there are thoughts that people have and actions that come from those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. The investigation of whiteness, the investigation of white people as racialized beings, as people who are conditioned by race in a different way than people who live in black and brown bodies. How do you see that? You mentioned the word denial. I don't know if you, if this is a good time to kind of peek at the slides that you've created that kind of talk about that. Does that feel like... so you've created um, a couple of models here, and I'm just going to take a moment to share the screen um, of what this looks like. You said denial here is this this sort of first uh, yes. stage um, of a white person coming into contact. Um, I wonder if it's better to look at the next slide first, because that here? talks about denial. Yes. Is this one because, here? Uh, yes, okay. uh, because that slide shows sort of levels of denial if you like because yeah. people can say but i'm fine i you know i espouse enlightened views about this sure so so um, let's 
yeah, go, go. Why don't you just go through walk? Shall I through just go cycle. through it? Yeah. Why don't we just uh, walk through the cycle? If, for example, you know, maybe provide an example of one that you've witnessed or seen in your life where you've seen someone kind of go through this cycle. Yes. Well, of course, a lot of people go through this cycle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and also, I think what, why I've made these things a cycle is because people tend to go around it. You know, you may think you're you've got past one and then you might slip back or you might, you know, sure. It's not, uh, it's not, it's not linear. It's not linear. Yes. Um, so the first level of, of denial, I'm calling white pride when you're proud of being white, uh, and you have no shame about it. It's just, that's how you're, you're white and proud, you know, and you, and those that are not white, are inferior and there's nothing the matter with that and well, here in and here in the united states judy there's a group called the proud boys that were yes, part, I, i've heard of them yes yeah that were you know involved in the capital uh storming um prior to the election yeah. and so we're just sort of looking at that word actually interestingly as being used even current day yes um, to kind of form an identity around that but please go on yeah, and just about that, I think sometimes when we make a bit of an advance, then there's a kickback, and mm -hmm. people like the Proud Boys are probably part of that, I imagine. That's an, I, I don't know, but I imagine that. Mm -hmm. And then um, um, it's not an issue for me would be, well, um, I don't really care about race. I'm not thinking about it. It doesn't affect me. I, you know what's all this about race? I, I don't care about it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not interested. Right. Yeah. Um, and then some of them are okay. You quite, you know, the, the classic thing of one, one of my best friends is black or something like that, you know, sort of, um, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I don't particularly like black people, but some of them are okay. That, right. that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and then colorblind would be, um, we're all the same. You know, uh, uh, I don't see any difference. We're all the same. So denying a difference, really. Right. Um, Which is so ironic because in the reality, like I just said, with the DNA, there's no difference. But because of the construct and the system that's been put in place based on these ideas that have been um, very much cultivated and pushed forward over time that are false and erroneous, just like people believe the world was flat for a long time, um, that, 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 that there is a consequence to um, what it means to now have different melanin levels based on the way in which people have been conditioned to respond to that. And the colorblindness piece is what we would call spiritual bypassing around the idea of skipping ahead. Um, yes, yes, yes. So, course it would be nice if everybody was in fact if society as a whole was colorblind would be a great thing wouldn't it but it's not in that position and actually people who say they're colorblind are probably not colorblind in fact understood um and then the the, the last one is what i call liberal angst in it um sort of oh dear i'm not doing very well here and mm. um 
black people are having a really bad deal, you know, and the police stop them and oh dear, oh dear, you know, with, <clears throat> but not really engaging, you know, not really, and not looking at themselves also, you know, not seeing it in themselves. This is some terrible thing that happens out there. So, you know, liberal angst people are getting there, but they've not really thoroughly understood the situation. Sure, sure. So if we go back to the pre previous slide, mm -hmm. uh, so when I say denial, I've got all those in mind, okay? Understood. Um, gosh, it's very small. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is, but um, I'll... Well, denial isn't, funnily enough, yes. So the first one after denial is when... Struggle to understand other perspectives. Struggle to understand other perspectives. So something will have sparked a difference in the denial situation, like suddenly coming up against something, reading something maybe, um, something that makes the person think maybe there is something here to understand. And that person might start reading books, they might start talking to people, reading things in the paper, looking at things in, on YouTube or whatever. Something has, something has clicked in their mind that makes them look into it. They become interested and think, I think maybe there's something to look at here. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and then um, the next one is... Um, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Now, this one, a lot of people really criticise me for including guilt and shame. In so interesting. Book. I'm curious about why. Uh, well, there's two reasons, I think. One from people who are not white and one from people who are white. Guilt and shame, I think, are probably the worst things to feel. You know, it's, it's, if you feel guilty or ashamed, it's like an attack on you as a good person. Mm. It's, it's, a, you know, it's not a nice feeling. Um, and I'm just... Maybe, so maybe I'll say why, what it is in the model and then I'll come to what people, yeah. uh, how people um, challenge it. Um, to me, if you understand that white people have, a, have a, a privilege and think of themselves as superior and that those who are not white are disadvantaged and also that... Um, that the history of, of white um, superiority, so-called superiority, is a very terrible and bloody one, then if you really take that on board, you're going to feel guilty. Mm. And if you feel guilty, you feel ashamed. Mm. Um, so we um, really begin to acknowledge and take in the actual history of colonization, of brutality, of enslavement, of genocide, yeah. of um, counting people as, as percentages of human and um, all of these other things um, that have gone on for centuries um, that, 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 that it's hard not to if you have a human heart um, and you're actually bumping up into this. Uh, see that there's something very wrong about that. And, and I, I, I've used moral injury as a lens to kind of think about that or talk about that, the way that um, that's something that veterans, you know, who have, you know, killed and murdered and raped, you know, um, 
when they've been at war have come home sort of with that sense of moral injury. And I kind of feel like that's a way to kind of explore this uh, guilt and shame piece. But go on, please. So, um, you know, some people avoid that. Well, I come back to avoiding obvious, actually. So maybe I won't say that now. <laughs> mm -hmm. But... Um, but the thing is that um, I, I'm challenged on the guilt and shame front by white people because they say um, it's not it's not my fault. I've not done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. But the more you look into it in the previous one, and you see that you have done things that are wrong, you know, and also that the wealth that was built up on the back of people, white people saying they're superior. Um, we are still building on that. We still uh, we still advantaged from the wealth that was built up at that time. So, you know, you you weren't white people are culpable even now. It's not just a historical thing, although that's something to feel guilty about as well. I think, but right. it's it's we are still culpable. Well, it's, it's so interesting because what you're sort of pointing to is that there's a certain degree of entitlement with the privilege in a white body that makes you feel as though, well, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm doing that rugged individualism, the meritocracy, the um, manifest destiny piece around like, well, I've, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to have this as opposed to, well, is what I'm having or taking um, at the expense of another? That's sort of sure. the, the question. Exactly. Yeah. That's very well put. Yeah. So um, if you take that on, um, what's not great is just wallowing in that, not doing anything with it, because for one thing, you probably can't bear it for too long. But the next part of the, if we go around to the next part, um, rather than just think I'm guilty, it, the, the, the way out of that is to face your own privilege. You know, to, and face what your own white mean? privilege. Mm -hmm. Yes, as a white person, what is your privilege and what can I do about it? You know, it's, it's um, um, and being prepared to, to explore your own um, racist thoughts and actions, um, being, you know, really facing it uh, and doing something about it, not just wallowing in, in guilt. So I'm not saying you should just feel guilty and that's it. I'm saying, you know, face it and see what can be done about it. Mm -hmm. And then, and that leads, if we go to the next one, to more of a sense of integration, of being more integrated as a person, um, less full of denial and more able to act from a wholer place, mm -hmm. a place in which you, you're, not, you're not in denial. Right. Um, so that's, and then, it, you know, I've made it a, um, a circle. And actually, I tell you what, let's go to the next, the, the, not the next one, but the next one. Because that's, this, this slide shows how blocks can happen along the process that, you know, that I've shown a process what blocks can stop Yeah, so these are the things happening. that get in the way of becoming more racially, becoming... These are the things that get in the way of white people being more aware of themselves as racialized beings. That's right. That's it. Yes. Okay. So um, um, the first one, um, uh, so 
if you start looking at um, what it's, you know, what what being white is about, then the denial of identity, of your identity as a good white person, and that white's fine and don't attack it, um, that's, it feels too much of a threat. And there's a kind of, you know, falling away from that back into a denied denial place. Um, you know, you might have done a course, for instance, somebody who does a course about race for their work, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and they might get a glimmer of, you know, oh, maybe that position's not great. But when they come out of the course, they fall back because it's just right. too much. Right. It feels overwhelming. So they, yes. we've all seen the, um, uh, there's a book called, uh, you know, Diversity Inc. And it's sort of about the idea of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings that are, you know, offered at nonprofits and at corporations around the world that do nothing to move the needle on equity because, which is about power and privilege and about access, um, because they're just sort of teaching people from their left to their left brain about sort of things you know or things that you're informed about, but it's not really involving from a place of a spiritual place or a mindful place, the compassion yeah. connection of the heart underneath it. Yes, that I mean, what people learn on courses like that is how to use the right language so they can appear not to be racist. Mm. I think that often happens. Yes. And it's, it's almost as if that's what you're supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm to not offend the PC culture, yeah. to, we call it CYA, cover your ass, you know, to make sure that you're not going to be putting in a position. And it's interesting because again, who are the stakeholders and why would you be doing it? If it is and from a mindfulness perspective, we talk about what is your deepest intention? Is your deepest intention to become more racially aware and racially sensitized as yourself as a racialized being and how you participate in a knowing or in an unknowing way, in an ignorant or in, in a white awake way about, oh wow, I am in a white body participating in this structure as such, how am I going to work with that awareness? Or are we having this deepest intention of, no, I'm just doing this training to check off the box, to cover my ass, to go through my, tri- you know, my job. And, yeah. and, and that when we look at that that way, then we really sort of understand more about, well, who is this serving? What is this for? And, um, and I, think, I think if you're teaching a course like that, if you come from a very accusatory place, you know, um, then I think it's likely to make people feel um, unable to take it on board, you know, like it, they, they withdraw from, from the accusation. Mm. Um, I think you need to come from a more compassionate place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in order to help people, for, you know, go forward in, the, in their um, understanding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the next one um, um, is similar in a way that, you know, if you feel guilty and ashamed, then it's, it, it is quite an overwhelming feeling and it's not nice and people do pull back from it. So, um, you know, so, so uh, nobody likes to feel like a bad person. Right, right. And so there's a tendency to, to pull back at that point um, right. and then withdrawing then, from feeling like a bad person yeah that's guilt yes. and shame so we're just sort of skipping around here i'm moving the slides here the denial of identity feels like it's too much of a threat um and and the withdrawing from feeling like a bad person i don't know how to tolerate my guilt and shame and so therefore 
we're going to um, do the next piece here, which is the facing my own white privilege. And you're saying that there's the block here of wanting to hide. Yes. What, um, yes. Not want, wanting to keep your head down, like, you know, aware that there's something to face here, but it's too difficult. So you want to hide. Mm. You want to keep your head down, not be called to account in any way. Um, so there's then that. The, then the next one is and integration. Is, like when you get to that point, it's quite hard to maintain that commitment. It's it's it, it takes work. You know, it's it's not just an easy peasy thing. It it takes work to maintain one's level of understanding and awareness mm. um, it takes work so and then the next one is that if you get to um um you you get, get falling into another s cycle of denial um you might you know another cycle to go through might be caused by feeling complacent like i understand about all this now um, I've got there and there's no more work to be done. Um, so there's, there can be a feeling of complacence and a fresh, what maybe the denial becomes more subtle. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? More hidden. You can hide from it more easily. You've kind of learned how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. So that's the, that's the, um, process I yeah, and I mean, as you you know, as you walk through this, I think it's really, I think it's really important because we've talked about, you know, I've taken a lot of different courses with other people who are in white bodies and other people who are in um, black and brown bodies, and in the courses that I've taken with people who are white bodies, I mean, I've witnessed the whole idea of the way people have denied or withdrawn or taken a step back or felt overwhelmed or felt like it was too much and. Part of my training as a somatic experiencing and sort of focusing, felt sense oriented kind of um, bottom up uh, practitioner is to kind of um, integrate the idea that there is a way to be able to be with our feeling of sinkingness. There is a way of being able to be with our bodily sense of heaviness, of, 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 you know, the guilt and the shame. It has a certain texture to it, a certain weight to it, a certain kind of a sense of, well, who wants that? It feels like sludge. It feels like lava. It feels like volcanic. And, and who wants to, to do that, especially when I don't have to, when I feel like I don't have to, I don't think that I have to. And that the other alternative is, you know, if I can just keep it at bay, if I just sort of have plexiglass around my life and I don't have to, you know, actually integrate any of this, then um, I can protect myself. And so um, it's easier for me to kind of uh, stay back here than, than, than lean in because when I do try to engage, it feels like it's too volatile or I don't have the tools to ground myself in a place that doesn't go that, that that doesn't keep me from from sinking into the shame spiral, the quicksand around that, and the mindfulness piece I think can very much help people too because in mindfulness we recognize when we're telling ourselves a story about something, as opposed to just being with yes. actually what's here, mm -hmm. and so this idea of like oftentimes people will say, well because I have this racist thought or in Dick Schwartz's language from internal family systems, there is a racist part in me that is subtle and insidious. And even if I'm doing work, that it's a, it's a learning journey 
around becoming more racially aware as myself as a racialized being and also in the way in which um, other people are impacted by racism and the structures of oppression, that, that this part is, um, you know, in a way, I'm kind of losing my train of thought, um, the, the idea of being a racialized being, even as a white person, that as you're coming into awareness around that, that you're able to use mindfulness to recognize when you're telling yourself a story about yourself being a terrible person, being a bad person, as opposed to being someone who has an imprint or a conditioning or a set of things that have been told that in order for you to stay safe, you should think this way or be this way or have these kinds of friends and not those kinds of friends, right? And that and that I think that if we can understand it from that perspective, there's a reason why I think this way. We're not indicting you as a as a person. We're 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 looking at the behavior and the beliefs as problematic, and we're 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 inviting in your you know cultivation of your courageous heart to lean into this and to learn yes, some exactly. of the tools, yes. you know, to kind of ground yourself so you can stabilize and scaffold yourself as you do this this work. Because it's our collective liberation. It's no fun to live behind the plexiglass. Yes, yeah, sure. Absolutely. And I think what's really interesting, you say, is how the body is a way into discovering that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think I could use that more. I think that's really, that's, that's very profound, really. That actually these, these things are actually embodied. Um, that we pick the, these ideas up in our bodies and hold them in our bodies. And that's maybe a key to discovering them. Um, I've always had this idea of that thoughts just sort of go through your mind and catch them. You know? Yeah. But I think um, actually finding them in, in your whole body is probably a great thing as well. Um, and, and, and letting them go, you know, what happens if you do let them go? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, too, what you're saying, because I think, again, just sort of listening to our, you know, paying attention to our, the listener base that, that we have, um, Joseph Goldstein, the mindfulness teacher, talks about um, it's out of a place of equanimity, which we would call balance. Um, you know, equanimity is just sort of a, a calm presence, a calm mind balance is that the mind opens spontaneously and intuitively to the unconditioned, the unborn, the unmanifest nirvana. And, and, and it's interesting when we think about nirvana, we think about peace, about, you know, sort of the, the cornucopia of, 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 uh, of pleasures and, and things like that. But really what we're talking about is being able to come to a place where we're unconditioned, unborn, where we're imagining something new, that there's a place for, you know, when, when people like Resma Menicum, a somatic experiencing practitioner and psychotherapist here, um, he talks about somatic abolitionism. He's talking about using the body to help understand where the trauma is stuck in us as white people yes and how that shut down is part of what keeps us from feeling connected and related and this idea of curiosity and play is part of what enables us to imagine a new world that doesn't have to involve the kind of policing that we've had 
that doesn't have to involve the kind of incarceration system that we've had, but that in order to move through that to that place, we have to feel safe enough so that we can explore with curiosity and with imagination what else might be born or new. Yes, it makes me think, I, I, I'd like to come back to the challenges to the idea of guilt and shame, because in some ways, that I mean, I think Buddhists, for instance, might say that's not a great place to be. Um, I, but how I understand it is that every feeling that human beings have has a place, has a reason to be there. Mm-hmm. And a reason for guilt is if we've done something that's harmful, then guilt alerts us to that. And um, uh, if we feel ashamed of that, it might help us to do something about it, it might help us to move through that. So, I, you know, I'm not saying that it's a good idea to be caught in this feeling of guilt and shame, but that we have an, something that alerts us to something seriously amiss here. Right. And, and I love what you're saying, Judy, because we're talking um, often about the, the energy of anger, the utility of anger, the energy yeah. and the utility of guilt or shame, the idea of using it as a sort of fulcrum toward accountability and toward sort of recognition, and that we, we can't really manifest change if we just stay stuck at the knot of, I need to just push away from that. Yes. Because if I could just add to that, to that to hearing about what you're saying about anger, what yes. sometimes people do is rather than feel the guilt of themselves, like I am guilty of this, they'll get angry about other people who are racist. Right. You know I mean? And that's, a, that's another way of being, of a, that's another defense, if you like. It's not me at fault, it's other people who are horrible racist people Right. Um, and of course, it's important to understand them as well. Where are they coming from? What's that about? You know, um, like the, um, what's it called, boys? The um, the Proud Boys. Proud Boys. You know, where are they coming from? What's that about? Mm-hmm. And, you know, finding compassion for them in their, you know. So it's quite complex, isn't it? Well, um, I think I think what we're pointing to is the difference between the behavior and the conditioning that begets that behavior and the mm-hmm. desire to lean in and unpack what leads us to come to the conclusions that we come to about anything in life and whether or not those are harmful or not harmful, skillful or not skillful, wise or unwise. Mm-hmm. And if we can then make a choice that is rooted in what we would call interdependence or our collective interbeing around the fact that we are not separate entities and there is no division these are constructed and using that as a place of opening our hearts and leaning into these challenges around our own Mm self-concept and rooting ourselves in the idea of selflessness of the idea of like yeah I'm a unique individual in the relative world but I also am this wider vaster spirit that can from a heart-centered place of safety and connection be open to being more accepting of all of the various manifestations of my own behaviors that are challenging sometimes, and also the things out there in the world that um, are cause for concern that I want to help, you know, that I want to, that I want to change or be a part of, of, without doing it in a way that's, as you say, a do-gooder or performative or white saviorism. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Actually, that brings me on to the other 
objection to guilt and shame that people, to, which people of, of colour uh, will say, I'm not interested in white guilt. And that's quite often said. And um, that sometimes looked on that I am saying that um, that white guilt is something they should be interested in. Absolutely not, as far as I'm concerned. Because another thing that people can do with their guilt, the sense of guilt, is to try to get people who are not white to absolve them of their guilt. I am a good white person, aren't I? That sort of, that's what's kind of asked of them at some level. You know, tell me I'm a good white person. Right. And, and that's so problematic for people of color who are having to endure um, sort of this idea of what offering the blessing. I mean, I, I was raised Catholic, so I'm thinking of like the way that you know, yes. the, the priest was, you know, washing his hands over people to sort of yes. absolve you of your sins or something, yes. um, which is just not the role that, uh, you know, should be played here. No, no. So I, you know, I'm not saying that... I can quite see why people of colour might say they're not interested in white guilt, but they don't need to be, you know? Well, that's what I mean. The white people have to do the work around understanding yeah. whiteness and themselves as a white-bodied, white-adjacent, white or light-skinned privileged person of colour as a racialized being. And that mm -hmm. this idea of whiteness hurts everyone, even though it benefits certain people. Yeah. So both yes, are true. Yeah. Yes, yes. It hurts in different ways. Yep. Some are obvious when it comes to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and some are less obvious when it comes to white bodies in terms of what I think are neuroses, addictions, you know, suicidality, this idea of terrible lack of self-worth or self-value, self-esteem that can then be at the root of all these other things that prevents us from moving into a place of, of real connection. Yes, I mean, the whole of society, I mean, none, no one benefits by a society that's full of conflict and division. Um, yeah, so we it's also... from a heart-centered place, from a place about, you know, how many shekels do you have? I think that there's a certain idea of it being more beneficial, right? Like the idea of like, well, when we're talking about just having been so imbued with this sort of capitalistic gain, greed mindset of more is better and everything has to be taken to scale and we have to extract as much as we possibly can, whether it's the rainforest or whether it's the, you know, sort of fields or whether it's the, you know, how much, how many billions is, is enough uh, of dollars when we're talking about, you know, certain um, people who are the, the wealthy, the wealthy white men, frankly, um, in the world and other people who are wealthy also that, that, that are still part of that system. Um, that it, it's sort of a false notion of what begets happiness and contentment. Yeah, exactly. And, and the exploitation of the world, world's resources. And global warming and yeah. lack of species yeah. is really down to the actions of, of white people, in fact, on the whole. Yeah, uh, so Judy, as we, as we kind of begin to wind down today, can maybe you talk about two things. One is how is this specific to people in the helping professions? If you're a white-bodied person as a therapist or a mindfulness teacher or a yoga teacher or a teacher, someone who's in a helping profession, why is this even that much more important and how can you cause harm as you're trying to, you know, sort of work 
in a, in a way that is, is in theory helpful and supportive to people's emotional uh, growth. Um, and then also, um, well, let's just, let's just leave it with that. Well, um, what that brings me in mind of is something that we haven't really talked about, which is a power differential. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's, we've implied it, but, um, and if you're in a helping profession, you are in a powerful position vis-a-vis -vis your, whatever you're calling them, clients or service users or whatever, people you work with. Mm -hmm. You're in a very powerful position. You, you probably, uh, it's through you that you obtain resources, for instance. Um, that, you know, and so your clients need to keep you on side. And um, uh, you need to be mindful of your position, that you're not only for white helping professionals, not only are they white, they've got other, they are by their very um, profession in a powerful position. And if you're, if you're white as well as a professional, sure, sure. it, it, it piles on the inequality. And to some extent, that's inevitable. I mean, for instance, say you're a housing officer, um, I don't know if you have housing officers in America. I don't know how it works, but mm -hmm. in, uh, in Britain, you know, there is there's public housing, as it were, the cheaper than. And if you're to get one of those, and you go to a housing officer, um, you, you know, you're at their mercy, really. Mm -hmm. And um, so they don't know. Um, is this person seeing me as? black and therefore not in you know not in need or, or you'd rather give it to a white person for mm -hmm. instance mm -hmm. you know um i think i just think that awareness of the power differential is really important mm -hmm. and aware of how you might be um influenced unconsciously maybe or maybe consciously of um you know, of, of your prejudice against certain people, your, um, we haven't talked about, um, oh dear, what do you call it? <laughs> um, when you're prejudiced, against, you have a certain valence. Implicit bias. Bias, that's the word. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, that you, you know, you have to be aware of your biases. and. Um, So I think it's very important from that point of view. I mean, you know, from other points of view, they're just other human beings and it's important to everybody. But uh, there's an extra responsibility, I think, for people in the helping professions. Yes, I appreciate that. Yeah, power plus privilege. That's what we're really talking about. And we're talking about yes. equity work and we're talking not just about equality, but equity work, which takes the power um, and the access and the resources into account that are... Um, rolled out the red carpet for some and denied uh, to others, and that there are systems that are in place to continue to perpetuate that, and that is what we're trying to uproot. We're trying to uproot the 
seeds here that have been planted of ignorance and greed and delusion from a mindfulness perspective. And we're trying to um, plant seeds of, of wisdom, compassion and, and discernment and, and, um, and right action and ethics and, and, and equity and equality and balance. And, and I think that as we, as we kind of make that shift when we're able to take an accounting, a self-accounting of what's really happening inside. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like a lot of people get stuck on that shame and guilt piece. And I know, as you say, that sometimes it feels as though it's a privilege to be able to get stuck on that piece for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I say there's really no use in it. Shame is quite narcissistic, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's understandable that people sometimes feel as though they're doing something good by feeling bad. But that <laughs> there's the complacency around that in terms of not actually moving the needle on equity and on um, collective liberation. And I think that at the end, when we feel like we're all together in something and we feel safe with one another on that, I've never found a greater satisfaction than, than that experience. So I would wish that we were able to, to move more toward that. And I thank you for creating this model and writing these books and doing your work to, you know, begin to shed light on what it is that, that, you know, might be the stages there. And I encourage people to read them, white, privileged, unmasked, um, and then also being white in the helping professions. And I know you have other books and other papers that are out there also that you, um, that people can find. Is there anything more you want to say, Judy, about any of this? Well, I don't think so. Um, it's been really nice to talk to you and um, have an opportunity to explain this to people. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Judy Ride. And I'm Francesca Maxime with the Rerooted Podcast. You can find me at MaximeClarity.com, M-A-X-I-M-E, Clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care, Judy. Bye.